You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Wednesday, July the 29th, and here's your exercise tip of the day. If you're trying to work out at home, but you don't have weights, just lift your baby instead. Yeah, babies are surprisingly heavy. And if you don't have a baby, you can find one outside in a stroller. They're everywhere. Anyway, on tonight's episode, we talk about the history of black women being erased from history, the conversation Trump refuses to have with his pal Putin, and we'll find out who is America's top Bezos. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick it off with some good news from Hollywood, the only city that's got a name tag in case you forget where you are. Yesterday, the 2020 Emmy nominations were announced, and it was an especially great day for black performers who got a record 34% of the nominations, which is huge and well-deserved, but it's still not enough. That's right. I won't be satisfied until black people get 100% of the nominations. Yeah, you heard me. We're coming for you, white people. In fact, we want every role to be played by a black actor. I won't be happy until Kevin Hart is playing Queen Elizabeth in The Crown. Mm, uh, mm. Let me tell you something, Prince Charles. Mm. No one wants to hear your opinion. You ain't shit, okay? I'm the queen. You ain't shit. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm joking, guys. It really is great to see black performers getting the recognition they deserve. And that's all black people want. And we at The Daily Show are extra grateful because once again, we were nominated. And so to you, the viewers, I wanna say thank you so much. Without you, there would be no show and no one would be tweeting me to criticize my apartment decor. I see you, internet, and you hurt my feelings. But let's move on to the ongoing tensions between the United States and China. First, there was a fierce battle over trade. Then the U.S. began blaming China for the coronavirus. And last week, the State Department expelled Chinese diplomats from a consulate in Texas, claiming that they were using it for spying, which then caused China to shut down an American embassy in response. And I mean, all of that is basically the diplomatic equivalent of unfollowing each other on Instagram. So with all of this going on, it's no surprise that this story has people freaking out. Now to a growing mystery surrounding unsolicited packages of seeds randomly being sent to Americans across the country. Agriculture officials are warning residents if you didn't order the seeds, do not plant them. The packages appear to have originated in China. Uh, okay, this is really bizarre. People all across America are getting unexpected packages of seeds in the mail from China. And what's even stranger, is that some people might actually be planting them? Who just gets an unexpected packet of seeds in the mail and goes, well, I wasn't planning on planting any mystery vegetables in my backyard, but now it would be rude not to plant them. Haven't people learned anything from Jack and the Beanstalk? You can't just go around planting random shit that people give you. Cause then before you know it, you're climbing up a giant beanstalk into the sky and then you're killing a giant and now you want it for giant murder. And so now you have to change your identity and pretend that you're some South African host of a late night show. And you know what? I've already said too much. Now I'm not gonna lie. When I first heard the story, I didn't know what to think. I mean, why would China be sending random packets of seeds to Americans? Like what, in three months are those seeds gonna bloom into Chinese soldiers? But it turns out the real explanation might not have anything to do with espionage. Basically, Chinese businesses 
could be sending seeds to people in America simply as a way to generate a fake sale and fake positive reviews, which then boost their online ratings, which to me seems like a waste of time. I mean, it's really easy to spot a fake positive review online because every positive review is fake. People only write reviews when they're pissed off. Nobody's taking the time to go on Amazon like, broom works as advertised, pushes dirt from one spot to another. Five stars. Either way, the joke's on you, China, because plants have been the only thing keeping me company the last few months. Yeah, you're just sending me new friends. Isn't that right, Jeremy? Jeremy, you take that all lives matter bullshit out of your mouth before I kick you out of the house. It's not cool, man. Moving on to today's big tech news. While Jeff Bezos is testifying in Congress for the first time ever, his ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott, was making news of her own because Forbes magazine recently named her the third richest woman in America. But now she's working hard on moving down the list. Mackenzie Scott, who used to be married to Jeff Bezos, says she's donated $1.7 billion to causes that she believes are important to her. The money will go to more than 100 organizations in nine areas of need. That includes racial and LGBTQ equality. Scott, who changed her name to her middle name following her divorce, received a quarter of Bezos' shares when they divorced. And that was worth $35 billion at the time. Damn, $1.7 billion donated to charity. It's almost like Mackenzie Scott is determined to be the anti-Bezos. She's woke, she doesn't hoard her money, and she has a full head of hair. I mean, I guess the only downside is if she ever starts a home delivery service, nothing you order will ever arrive in time. And you know, it's great that she's being this charitable because $35 billion is a shit ton of money. Like she's so rich that when she checks the balance on her phone, she has to turn it sideways. And when you're in landscape mode, you rich, rich. And you know, the best part is you can't even say that she's donating all this money for the tax write-off because billionaires don't pay taxes. Speaking of billionaires who lose money, Donald Trump. Unlike every other American president, he's been oddly chilled out about Russian aggression towards the US. And now he's basically giving a giant shrug to one of Russia's deadliest schemes yet. It's been widely reported that the US has intelligence indicating that Russia paid bounties or offered to pay bounties to Taliban fighters to kill American right. soldiers. Right. You had a phone call with Vladimir Putin on July 23rd. Did you bring up this issue? No, that was a phone call to discuss other things. And you've never discussed it with him? I have never discussed it with him, no. Uh, it never reached my okay. desk. You know why? Because they didn't think it was intelligence. They didn't think it was real. It was they in your written think... brief, though. Do you read your written brief? I do. do I you? read a lot. Really? You know, I read a lot. They like to say I don't read. I read a lot. Uh, your read, your I, daily I comprehend extraordinarily well. Okay. First of all, I actually believe Trump when he says that this intelligence briefing never reached his desk. Because, I mean, his desk is so full of Goya beans, where were they going to put the files? But it is bizarre that Trump is the most impulsive president ever except when it comes to Russia. I mean, people are protesting against the police and he's like, we gotta send in the troops, break it up people, we gotta destroy them. But when Russia is putting bounties on American troops, he's like, they're only lashing out because we hurt them. Like Dr. Jen says, hurt people, hurt people. I mean, I guess I can understand where Trump is coming from. It is super awkward bringing up to your buddy how he put a bounty on your soldiers' heads you know, you're talking sports, you're talking chicks. You don't want to ruin the vibe with how he's spearheading a campaign to compensate enemy combatants for killing your troops. Zero chill, man, zero chill. And finally, 
an update on the protests that have been shaking Portland. Just moments ago, the governor of Oregon says federal agents are looking at leaving the city in a, quote, phased withdrawal. Those were the governor's words. However, this was President Trump appearing to dismiss that idea this morning. You hear all sorts of reports about us leaving. We're not leaving until they've secured their city. If they don't secure their city soon, we have no choice. We're going to have to go in and clean it out. You want to clean out Portland? Well, that's a good idea. I mean, you guys left a lot of tear gas canisters and flash grenades lying around the place. Look, this Portland thing has been very scary for America as a whole. And I'll tell you now, it's been especially scary for black people. I mean, Portland is the whitest city in America and they're still sending in federal troops to use overwhelming force. I mean, if that's what they're willing to do there, who knows what they're willing to do to minority groups. It's like seeing a white person kick a golden retriever. Yo, if that dog isn't safe, you damn well know your black ass isn't. All right, we're gonna take a short break. But when we come back, we'll tell you about the black women that history forgot. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So other than coronavirus, the biggest story this year has been Black Lives Matter, a movement fighting for equality and justice, and the reason so many of your favorite statues are suddenly unemployed. But as much as everyone has been talking about BLM, there's one aspect that doesn't get talked about enough, the role of black women in the movement. National attention focused on police brutality of and police killings of black men is not extended to black women. Often black women, black trans women are left out of the conversation. While the names most associated with the Black Lives Matter movement are male, black women and girls are regularly victim to police brutality in the US. Black women's experiences of police brutality tend to receive far less media and political attention. with this double layer of discrimination, black women have often been at the heart of key civil rights movements. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement, founded by three women back in 2013. Yeah, think about it. There's this giant historic movement sweeping the country, and 99% of us have never even heard of the women who founded it, which is pretty egregious. I mean, we all know who founded KFC. And that's not even a movement for racial equality. I mean, that's just a movement for destroying your bowels. And look, I'll be honest. I didn't know black women started the Black Lives Matter movement, partly because Aunt Becky told me it was her daughter. It was really convincing. She had a resume and everything. But the unfortunate truth is overlooking the role of black women in leading movements of social justice isn't anything new. As we'll find out in another installment of If You Don't Know, Now You Know. Although black women have been the pioneers of so many movements that have changed the world, the erasure of black women from the story of these movements is something we've seen many times throughout American history, starting all the way back with the women's suffrage movements. African-American women in particular played a significant and sometimes overlooked role in the suffrage movement. There were African-American women fighting for suffrage from the beginning. You know Sojourner Truth in the time of the Civil War, Ida B. Wells Barnett and Mary Church Terrell. They built a movement that would grow to half a million, but they would never find acceptance among mainstream suffragists. At that time, suffrage leaders were actively wooing Southern white members to appease the Southerners White suffragists found it expedient to abandon their black sisters. They minimized the presence of black women in that struggle. 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton, seized control of suffrage history in this multi-volume book that still dominates the histories and essentially wrote black women out of that. That's right. Black suffragettes were literally written out of the history books by white women in the movement. And just look at their faces. It's like they had already seen the future and they were like, mm-hmm, I'm not gonna get credit for any of this, am I? Because the truth is, certain white feminist heroes were super problematic. I mean, people remember them like they were early versions of Wonder Woman, when in reality, they were more like the mom from Get Out. Now, you may not be surprised that these 1920s Karens were eager to accept black women's work, but give them none of the credit. But what may surprise you is that black men in the civil rights movement were also happy to do a similar thing. Most women who worked in the movement, who were the actual backbone of the civil rights mm-hmm. movement, were not really known. Media attention would always be drawn to the men of the movement as they're doing work, the Martin Luther Kings and others, but would not necessarily go to women like Ella Baker, who was a longtime activist who helped to nurture and birth the student movement. Diane Nash was the lead strategist behind the sit-ins in Nashville and the Freedom Riders. She played a critical role in organizing the Dorothy Height was the godmother of the civil rights movement, but because she was a woman, she was often off to the side, behind the podium, behind the scenes. She was a guiding force at the table when the Big Six planned the historic March on Washington in 1963, the lone woman at a table full of men. Yet despite all her efforts, Height could not convince them that a woman should be allowed to speak at the podium the day of the march. Come on, man. This is so messed up. Black women were the lifeblood of the civil rights movement and still they got cock-blocked by the dudes? I mean, the reverends got half a dozen microphones right there. You can't break one of those off of my girl Dorothy? She was a critical part of the group. It's like if the Avengers were fighting Thanos, but they made Iron Man cheer from the stands. And this just shows you that black women don't just have to deal with racism from the world, but oftentimes they have to deal with the sexism within their own communities and the world at large. There's actually a term for it. Misogynoir, which means misogyny against black women. And it also sounds like the title of a really fancy French movie. I would love to promote you, but unfortunately I cannot because you are a black woman. So throughout history, black women have had their contributions to groundbreaking movements minimized or erased whether it's women's suffrage or civil rights. And the list goes on and on and on. The role of black women in starting and founding the women's movement and feminism altogether is still not in the history books. Many don't know this, but the Me Too movement was started by a black woman, Tarana Burke, 12 years ago to support victims and survivors of sexual violence. In the modern day calls for justice and equality, there's an echo of another social movement for LGBTQ plus rights, a movement sparked and sustained by black trans women. We never would have had a Stonewall if it wasn't for a black trans women saying enough due to police brutality and police misconduct. They fought back against the police that night, Uh, in particular, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, as well as Miss Major. In 2015, when they did the Stonewall movie, although we all knew that these black transgender women started that, uh, that, that riot that evening, they whitewashed it and they started it and replaced them with white queer characters as the leaders of that. Damn. They pulled a reverse Hamilton on the Stonewall movie. 
You know what we need to do? We need to add those women into the movie with CGI. Yeah, George Lucas has the technology and he owes us reparations for Jar Jar Binks. You know, when you think about it, the gay rights movement was basically like all cool slang on Twitter. You thought it came from white gay men, but they actually got it from a black woman. So the next time you march with Black Lives Matter or you exercise your right to vote or your dance moves go viral on TikTok, don't forget that black women were a major part of making that happen. And if you don't know, now you know. Okay, when we come back, I'll be talking to Michael Tubbs, the 29-year-old mayor of Stockton, California, who wants to give everyone free money. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with Stockton, California mayor, Michael Tubbs, the youngest mayor in America and a man who has transformed the city of Stockton as we know it. We also looked at his new HBO documentary about his life, Stockton, on my mind. Mayor Tubbs, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Really, for, the, for, the, for those viewers who don't know you and your story, I, I, I think when reading your list of achievements, they'll come to understand why somebody's making a documentary about your life. I just want to read some of these things here that are so impressive. You have, um, since you have been mayor, Stockton has seen a 40% reduction in homicides, the implementation of the first citywide scholarship program offered to all graduating high school students, the implementation of the first guaranteed income program, um, Stockton went from filing for bankruptcy in 2012 to becoming the second most fiscally healthy city in the state of California. Stockton was named an All-American city by the National Civic Leave League. And on top of that, Stockton has led California in 2019 in the decline of officer-involved shootings. So clearly you have a handbook on how to fix America and you're not sharing it with anyone. You're a 29-year-old mayor. I mean, that's, that's record-breaking. What are you doing differently, in your opinion? Yeah, well, first, I would have to say I have a great team. Um, so I think part of the secret sauce is not trying to fix everything, but listening to experts and looking, listening to some of the people who came before in terms of the things that are, that are working. But in terms of the new things we're doing, a lot of it has been motivated by the fact that I think government at its best is to invest in people. It's the wisest investment we can make. Government is nothing but the people, the citizens who make it what it is. So prioritizing the needs of all of our re residents, but also not being afraid to talk about equity, about the need to do more oftentimes for people that have done more, have had more done against them. And sometimes it's controversial, but it is yielding the results that we like to see in terms of a safer community, a more fiscally healthy community, and a community that people are looking to for solutions instead of problems. Let's talk a little bit about your relationship with the police chief. America has been through a period now of a few weeks or months really where police brutality has come to the fore. Stockton also has a story, has a history with how the police engage with the community. You have now been instrumental in working with your team to reduce police shootings and police violence towards the community by a huge amount. What did you find actually yields results between a community and its police? Yeah, well, part of it is policy changes. So having rules on the book that make it illegal and punishable um, to, use, to use force excessively. And part of it is also ongoing training. And our police chief, he's been really great since 2014 in bringing us through this truth and reconciliation process where our police chief, our police officers are in conversations with community members, many of whom have been impacted by police violence. And the fact that every single officer of ours goes training, not once, not twice, but continuously. I mean, we have a police chief who goes to black churches and says, I want to start by saying that I understand policing in America started with slave patrols. And that's an ugly racist history that 
wow. every wow. day with this bad, exactly powerful. And I think that's led the community to trust more, but that doesn't mean we're out the woods yet. But I will tell you, we have a lot more work to do. And I think particularly if you look at the reduction in police shootings, part of it's significant because the number was so high before and that mm-hmm. the, is, that there was a real issue. And so we're creating a new baseline, but always seeking to improve and get better. And also now having a conversation like many other cities around how we don't want cops responding to homelessness. We don't want cops responding to poverty. We don't want cops responding to mental health. And that we have to create new cast of characters and first responders who are more responsive to those needs. So we don't have police officers being social workers or, ho- or homeless navigators. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the program that arguably, you know, blew your name up all over America. And that was the Guaranteed Income Program. That was the first time I heard of your name. They said, man, there's this young mayor who's out of California and his plan is to give people just to give them $500 a month. And that's it, no strings attached, just here's your $500. And immediately, obviously there was backlash. People saying like, oh, so this is what America's turning into. We just give people free money now. Are are they blackmailing us? We give them money to not commit crime. But you saw this in a really different light. You said the reason you need to do this is is for everyone's gain. And that's what you've been doing. Tell me what you've learned from the program so far of giving people guaranteed income. Trevor, what I've learned from that is that, number one, a lot of the tropes that even I had about the economy just aren't really true. Um, The first one being that if people work that enough, and we've seen it particularly now during COVID-19, but even before, that people are working two jobs, three jobs, and still can't pay for necessities. And then the second thing I learned is that you can trust people. And that in society, we have... um, examples of people that we trust. We trust billionaires and corporations. Every time there's time for a bailout, we just give them money. We bail out industries. We give tax breaks. And implicitly, we're saying we trust those individuals to make good decisions with the money. And what I found in doing this pilot in stock is that you can trust regular people like you and me with money as well, that folks spend money how people spend money because they're people. So in Stockton, we found that the money is spent on food, on um, utilities, or on taking time off of work when you're sick, or of taking time off of work to interview for other jobs. And then the last thing I've learned from idea, part of the issue with our economy is that we attach dignity to work. Everyone talks about the dignity of work, but I don't think there's anything dignified about working yourself to death to pay for necessities. And what I think we're trying, we need to get to as a society is really the dignity of humanity, like human dignity, that our dignity happens before we get to work So then when we go to work, we have dignified protections like unions, like paid time off, like family leave, and like wages that pay. The fact that people make more unemployed than employed suggests a problem with how we're paying wages and how we're valuing the quote-unquote dignity that comes from work. The one question I would love to know the answer to is, how did you convince your detractors? How did you convince them that the city giving people money would actually benefit everybody? Well, in, in our case, we were lucky for the initial pilots to use sort of um, private-public partnerships. So to really prove the concept with saying, hey, this is, um, this is money from philanthropy. But even then, there's still been a lot of backlash and detractors. And what we've been saying is that the, the community is all of us, universal as you and I, and we all truly do do better when we do better. And I talk about my personal experience. I talk about how my mother had me as a teenager how my father is still incarcerated and how all the tropes 
I hear about people who are incarcerated or even people who are poor just aren't true to my experience and the experience of the people in your community. And it's a lot of conversations, a lot of relationship building, and we're still not all the way there yet. But I also think that if we wait to get complete agreement on everything, we'll never move forward. So if it's right and it's beneficial for the people, we just have to move forward with it. Well, I'll tell you this, man. Tubbs, at 29 years old, you've already shifted, uh, you know, a city in a giant way. You started to shift America, and uh, I can't wait to see what you're doing at 39 years old. Thank you so much for the time, man. Well, thank you, brother. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Stick around, because when we come back, I'll be talking to the multi-talented Liza Koshy about her new Netflix film, Work It. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with YouTube megastar, actor, and producer, Liza Koshy. We talked about working with Michelle Obama to get more young people to vote, and her new Netflix film, Work It. Liza Koshy, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you, thank you. It's an honor to be here, uh, an honor to speak with Emmy-nominated Daily Show. Congratulations oh, on oh, oh, shucks. Oh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, no, but for real, though, you know, it, it really is amazing to have you here just because you have managed to find a way to do everything in your life exceptionally well. You managed to turn what you were doing on YouTube into a presence on Instagram. You moved it to another platform. You've now moved into TV. You've moved into film as well. And as we saw in the clip that we just played, you're in a new movie that's where you're playing a character who's a dancer. And I mean, that's pretty much you, right? That's pretty much me. I'm pretty much just playing myself in most things that I do. But I tapped into a little bit of Channing Tatum. I uh, channeled the Channing, Channing for this one. But uh, yeah, I'm so excited. I've been dancing online for years and I didn't realize that I was auditioning for this role in this movie to be the best dancer. And I say every time, like, we have the best damn editor because I'm definitely not the best dancer. But uh, <laughs> it was fun. It was so, it's a dream come true. Yeah, you know what? I feel like you, you're good at, you're good at uh, self-deprecating humor, but you are actually... I remember the first video I saw of yours, I was like, oh, this is funny. She's acting like she can dance, which is very funny. And then I saw another video, then I was like, no, she can dance. Like, she can dance, right. she dance. I couldn't find any research. Are you, are you, like, professionally trained, or is this just like... You were just like, no, I just dance. I have it in my bones. You couldn't find anything. I cleared out Google. Uh, no, I started dancing um, at the age of four, so I started doing, like, ballet and jazz and tap. Took a little hiatus in middle school and then went into drill and dance team in high school. Had my Friday Night Lights dream and uh, in Houston, Texas. So I call myself off-brand Beyonce. Still working on the thighs, though. But I'm a professional dancer now, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> You've taken the following that you've gathered in all these different mediums, and now you've gone, hey, I wanna use this following to get people to vote. And you teamed up with Michelle Obama um, right. to, to get people to the polls. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I feel like my journey or my audition for Mrs. Michelle Obama was uh, back when I interviewed President Barack Obama in 2016, so I auditioned to work with Michelle. And uh, that really started my journey, and that journey continued whenever I, uh, in 2018, went into a couple of high schools in Texas with Miss Alicia Keys and Miss America Ferreira and got to go and speak out to Gen Z, go and speak to kids in crowds at their school. And to see like a 16-year-old like raise their hand and be like, I don't know how to, how to vote, but I can't wait to do it when I can. So that was so exciting and invigorating to see that like movement and empowerment in just one kid. So I thought, why not do that to all the kids that and an audience that I have online? And uh, now I'm so happy and honored to be working with When We All Vote and getting the vote out. Gen Z is so 
scary. They're brilliant, but I'm terrified of them. And I'm like right on the cusp of Gen Z and millennials. So I feel like it's my job to like coddle millennials after they've been cyber bullied by Gen Z. So I, I'm right on that fine line. So I'm, I'm talking to both crowds here and, and I love, you know, I love how brilliant they are. They will make like a cinematic masterpiece on TikTok, but yet they don't know how to vote. They have all the information in the palm of their hands, but yet there's this shame in like not knowing it. So encouraging Gen Z to like step out of that shame, step into empowerment and get excited about voting, having their voice heard. Like it's okay to care about issues that affect your day-to-day life. Your journey has been creating, you know, from your, from your house, bringing us to your couch, telling us stories from your home. And then you were like working so hard and you got into TV, you got into Hollywood and now Liza Koshy's star is blowing up and then coronavirus hits and now all the TV shows are coming from your house and from people's apartments and from the couch. <laughs> Do you feel like you got, you got to the, the mountaintop, but it turns out it was like in the valley? Do, like, is there a part of you that goes like, wait, this is what I've been doing my whole life? You're back on the couch? Not, well, I'm happy to be back on my parents' couch, uh, being like a parasite and just sucking them, love, uh, sucking them of their love and peace. Um, <laughs> but I'm proud because I get to help you know, traditional transition into digital, which is an honor to be able to do. You're doing my job now, Trevor, you look good. And it feels good. It feels good to be back in like a familiar space, but with like brand new eyes to see the world in a different way after I've been in traditional production or I've been a director and executive producer now. So now I get to come at content in such a new way and try to blend those worlds is like mission. And it's all entertainment now, right? Like it's not traditional digital. It's like you're just being entertained or you're being informed and there's a lot out there. And now it feels like a lot of you YouTubers who at one time were considered the kids on YouTube, you're now like leading conversations. You're now talking about social justice issues. You've evolved like as a group, which is really interesting to see. Do you think YouTubers are also taking themselves more seriously than people used to take YouTubers? I think so. I think we're, we're holding ourselves up to a different standard. At least I am in the evolution of a creator and, and producer that I've been. I think, you know, we, we realize how, in, how crucial and how important our platform can be mm-hmm. and how powerful a voice can be. And especially with the world shifting too, like I think we're all having this internal shift. You know, if you weren't introspective before, you definitely are now looking in the mirror too long. So I think it's just uh, a matter, it's been a matter of time for people to care about, you know, social issues, political issues, and, and, and um, you know, express their voices and opinions online and kind of guide their audience to resources that, you know, they're tapping into or that they're excited about. I got to thank you because I am a sponge of information and you are an absolute wealth of knowledge. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm a suck up for sure, but uh, I soak it up too. So thank you for being like my place to go to, to like inform myself all the more. Um, but yeah, I'm just happy to share those resources with my audience. I think a lot of other creators are too. And when we, when we all vote, I'm so happy to share that as a resource to figure out how to vote, where to vote, when to vote, and you know, in the different world we're living in, that's, that's adjusted. So keeping yourself up to date with the newest information. Well, you thank me, and I thank you for teaching me how to make a show from home. So Eliza Koshi, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> thank you so much. You're killing it, though. You're killing it. Make, it, make a TikTok. Make a TikTok. <laughs> They're harder than they look, man. They're hard. They're very hard. They weigh, They take more time and they weigh harder than they look. Liza, thank you so much, man. Um, good luck with everything. I hope I see you again. Appreciate it. I hope so, too. Bye, guys. Thanks again for that, Liza. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, I wanted to remind you that America is facing a nationwide poll worker shortage. And because most poll workers are over 60, coronavirus is still out there, many of them 
are not showing up. But fewer poll workers means fewer polling stations are open, and it means longer lines that not everybody can afford to stay and wait in, especially in poorer communities. The good news is, though, most poll working is paid, and in some states, you can be as young as 16 years old to do it. So if you're interested, you have the time, then this is your opportunity to save your grandpa, protect your democracy, and get some of that money. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wash your hands, and don't plant strange seeds, just eat them. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.